I'm going to make some brief introductions of each of our panelists. And then the way we're going to structure it is we've invited each of our panelists to make some opening comments, some high-level views about this uh, issue of uh, the tech sector and its uh, its ability or its inability to cooperate with the government when it comes to, in particular, investigations, whether we're talking criminal uh, or intelligence investigations. Uh, so by way of introduction, uh, just going in alphabetical order, we, we are joined by Craig Albright. Uh, Craig is the leader of BSA's engagement with Congress. And for those that don't know, BSA is the Software Association. Uh, so they are a trade group representing companies that are in the software space. Prior to being at BSA, Craig was at the World Bank, where he was the group's special representative for the US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Uh, he also spent a number of years uh, in government, in the US government, uh, at the George W. Bush White House, where he was the special assistant to President George W. Bush for legislative affairs. He was also the deputy assistant to Vice President Cheney for legislative affairs. And before that, he spent uh, a number of years in leadership positions on the Hill. Uh, the next person who will be here momentarily, Stuart Baker. Uh, Stuart is a partner at the law firm of Steptoe & Johnson, where his practice focuses on international trade, telecom, internet, media, and in general, the cyber economy. In terms of Stuart's public service, he was the Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security during the Bush administration. Stuart was also the General Counsel at NSA. Our next panelist is uh, Mark Champeau. Uh, Mark kindly joined us. Mark is pinch hitting for Beth Williams. Uh, given yesterday's news, we can all appreciate that Beth is probably busy. Uh, but Mark kindly found some time on his schedule to come over. Uh, Mark is the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General uh, at the Office of Legal Policy at the Department of Justice. Uh, prior to coming into public service, Mark was a partner at the law firm of Davis, Graham, and Stubbs. He also spent some time at Kirkland Ellis, where his practice focused on litigation. Uh, our next panelist, Scott Keefe. Uh, Scott is a partner at McCool Smith, where his practice focuses on trade, cyber, IP, privacy, and national security topics. He's also a professor of law at George Washington University, where his uh, research and writing focuses on those same topics. Uh, from a public service perspective, uh, Scott was an FTC commissioner. He was appointed by President Obama and served from 2012 to 2017. And before academia, um, Mark was, uh, I'm sorry, Scott uh, was uh, uh, in private practice uh, focusing on IP litigation. And our final, but certainly not our least panelist, is David Chris. Uh, David is uh, the founder of Culper Partners, which is a consulting firm. Uh, they advise technology companies and clients on issues on technology and public policy. In government, David served in both uh, career and political positions in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Uh, most notably, he was the Assistant Attorney General uh, for the National Security Division at the beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, he has been a general counsel, he's been a deputy general counsel, he's been a chief compliance officer at large corporations, he also teaches national security, and he's uh, the co-author of the leading treatise when it comes to national security investigations titled National Security Investigations and Prosecutions. So I thank all of our panelists for being here. We thought the way to set the table would be to ask um, our representative, uh, Mark Champeau from the government, to talk about the administration's view on cooperation uh, between the tech sector and the government 
Uh, where are we today? Where is it going? And uh, how does the administration see the future? So, Mark? Great. Thank you very much, Matthew. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I want to thank um, Federalist Society and also the National Security Institute for uh, hosting this conference. Um, as Matt mentioned, um, Beth Williams, our Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Policy, um, had hoped to be here today um, sharing the remarks that I will be sharing with you instead. Um, one of the things we do at the Office of Legal Policy, as many of you know, is um, we help the White House uh, fill all of the judicial vacancies. Um, currently, we have 140 judicial vacancies, and um, that keeps us very busy. Uh, despite that, Beth was going to be here, but yesterday we got one additional vacancy that um, uh, just, I guess, put us a little bit over the edge in terms of resources. Um, so she uh, is sad not to be here today, uh, and I'm sorry you get the B team instead, um, but uh, we are um, very engaged in these issues because they are um, certainly some of the most important that we face at the Department of Justice in terms of law enforcement and counterintelligence today. Um, from, and, and they're some of the most important issues that we face uh, as a society, both um, from a business perspective and also from a national security perspective. Gone are the days when foreign actors target primarily or even, uh, or target only or even primarily our military or our government. Uh, the success of American technology and the information that American technology providers have is the envy of the world. And those who have not developed it or don't have it seek to steal it, use it, or disrupt it, whether for their own self-interested commercial advantage or more maliciously to harm our country. While companies may see themselves as global entities with worldwide reach and customers, that is not exactly how our adversaries see them. Uh, they see many of these companies, many of your companies, as American targets. Uh, now, the question for the panel today is, what duties do American technology companies have to assist the government? And that's a big question. It extends beyond legal duties, of course. Um, all of these companies have great, really smart lawyers that advise them about what is required of them under the law. Um, we think the broader question is, um, are companies citizens? Um, and if so, what are their duties to assist um, their duties as citizens to assist our democracy against foreign actors. What if, for example, as has often occurred, um, a company has reason to believe that Chinese nationals or Russian nationals or nationals of some other foreign state are trying to access its systems uh, for, for any purpose and especially for malicious purposes? Does it have a duty to inform the government and assist the government in locating the threat? Now, particularly because this is a Federalist Society event, it's worth uh, looking to what the founders had to say. Though hundreds of years ago, uh, they could not have imagined the types of threats we would face today, they understood well the meaning of citizenship. In 1777, for example, Thomas Paine wrote, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. We all benefit, including our corporations, from our system of laws and our protections for property. But we cannot expect government actors to be able to continuously enforce those laws and fight for our property rights, including our intellectual property rights, on their own. The United States needs the help of its corporate citizens if it's to be able to track the threat and bring wrongdoers to justice. The Department of Justice plays a key role in that effort. Um, cyber intrusions and attacks are crimes, and our mission with respect to these crimes is not just to investigate and prosecute, but also to identify, dismantle, and disrupt cyber threats. The aim is to provide justice to victims and deter others from committing similar offenses. 
and more and more, the department, uh, the battles that the department faces are online. Um, indeed, almost every crime today, uh, and thus almost every counterintelligence operation and every criminal investigation prosecution uh, that the department is involved in contains some element that has to do with uh, the cyber world. The department has significant resources to address these crimes, and where appropriate, we also work closely with our interagency partners to support financial, diplomatic, and military measures to bring all possible instruments of national power to bear against cyber threats. Um, while we can't discuss ongoing investigations or national security initiatives, the department does pursue and convict these criminals and sometimes releases public statements when it's able to. Just this year in January, for example, the department obtained a conviction in US federal court against a China-based manufacturer and exporter of wind turbines that stole, stole trade secrets from a US-based company. The Chinese company, Sinovel Wind Group, conspired with others to steal proprietary wind turbine technology from the American corporate victim in order to produce its own wind turbines and to retrofit existing wind turbines with stolen technology. These crimes cost the victim more than $1 billion in shareholder equity and almost 700 jobs, over half of its global workforce. Importantly, uh, in the course of our investigation and prosecution, the American company, the victim, was extremely cooperative. Uh, among other things, it made its employees available to be interviewed by investigators and prosecutors, sometimes on multiple occasions, uh, and provided other valuable assistance in terms of information gathering and building the evidence. The case is set for sentencing on July 6th, um, next week. It's the department's hope that at that, that time, the court will award restitution to the US, US company and appropriately sanction the criminals. This trade secret theft almost destroyed an American company. The department is focusing on crimes like these to protect the health and safety of American consumers and to safeguard the nation's economic security. In many cases, the Department of Justice and its interagency partners have skills and authorities that individual companies do not have. So while it may be attempting to go it alone or hire a private contractor to evaluate and remediate, such measures will not have the same impact as what the department and our partners can bring to bear. When companies work with the department, it allows us to collect important evidence and to better understand the sources of these attacks uh, and the methods by which they are perpetrated. We are then better able to share this information and strengthen our corporate defenses as well as to pursue the perpetrators. Even if we're not able to restore the corporate victim to the same position as before the attack, corporate cooperation is crucial to deterrence. The more we enforce the law and impose repercussions on cyber criminals, the more we can deter future criminal acts. And this is in everyone's interest. If criminals or foreign states believe that there is a high likelihood that a corporate victim will not even report the crime to the US government, they understand that their risk declines precipitously. So when we're thinking about corporate duties to assist the government, it is not necessarily just about what companies must do under the law. It's also about what they should do. Where corporations have liberties um, and enjoy the advantage of a free society and the laws that protect citizens in their property, they also have civic obligations. What's more, the name of this conference, the Tech Titans, aptly describes the great power that is wielded by our technology sector today. And as the uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein likes to say in many of his speeches, um, citing both the French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire and more importantly, Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, um, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. So I look forward to our conversation today and even beyond that, our continuing dialogue and partnership on these important issues. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, David, uh, yeah, tech titans are well, citizens. What's your view? I know you've been on both sides of the fence. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would say first that, um, you know, when I was in the government, and I've been in a few times, 
I was always frustrated and annoyed that the private sector entities would not be more responsive, share more information, be more helpful, come forward and assist uh, in very important government efforts that I was undertaking or that the other elements of the government are undertaking. And when I have been in the private sector, I was always deeply frustrated with the incredible arrogance of the government, the absolutely <laughs> one-way information sharing that they expected, and the otherwise obnoxious jackbooted thuggery that ensued whenever we engaged with them. And so I sort of have the sense that to first order of approximation, that situation, which has endured for a long time, continues more or less in that same way to this day. Um, there are some good efforts at cooperation on both sides, um, but there's a lot of lost opportunity and talking past one another that I think continues to occur. Um, having said that, I think there's three or four factors that could probably have an impact on the relationships between the private sector and government going forward. I'll just sort of step through those quickly, and then I'm even willing to identify where I think the next sort of interesting forum for further uh, discussion around how that relationship is going to work will be. And I'll probably be wrong, but I'll stake out a prediction nonetheless. First of all, um, uh, the Snowden disclosures had a profound effect, obviously. I am sort of of the view now that it's, it seems like maybe that's hit the high water mark, and we're going to see the pendulum swinging back a little bit. Um, uh, Corporations were resisting more noisily, if not more extensively, after Snowden. Um, in some cases, that drove very positive change. For example, Microsoft's Ireland litigation gave us the Cloud Act, which solved, or at least uh, began to solve, a very important problem with cross-border data requests. Um, but I, I wonder if Snowden has, has hit the high watermark. Number two, you've got things like Project Maven from the Google. Uh, engineers and other employees are feeling strongly about certain engagements between the private sector and the government, and they are making their views known, and it appears to be moving the needle inside these companies. Um, that may very well be because these companies don't want to lose a substantial portion of their workforce. They feel like they have uh, Delaware law fiduciary duties to maximize profits, and they can't do that without workers. Anyway, Project Maven type issues and workers flexing muscle uh, to limit engagement with the government seems to me to be a thing that's going on. Um, third, I think you have to say the advent of the Trump administration, I think, enlarges the number of possibilities for government and private sector interaction one way or the other. Uh, that is, I think, it's just a, a, a wider range of, of possibilities and perhaps less predictable to the private sector um, than was previously the case. I think, for example, the Obama administration's relationship with Google or the George W. Bush administration's relationship with Halliburton was at least sort of more predictable than what we have uh, today. And then finally, there's always the potential impact of an exogenous event. If there's a major terrorist attack that occurs or a big mass casualty event of some other kind, and it can be attributable to some behavior, say, by a corporate entity that didn't cooperate in a way that, uh, that, that might have, that could, of course, have a, have a big uh, play uh, in how the public debate ensues. So that's sort of how I'm looking at it. I, I think the area in which um, 
A lot of this may play out in the near future is under the auspices of technical assistance. There are about a dozen or more technical assistance provisions in various part of, uh, parts of federal law, Stored Communications Act, Wiretap Act, FISA, and so forth. These provisions allow the government to get either a court order, in some cases an AG directive that compels a provider to provide not just data but technical assistance to the government in carrying out a wiretap or some other kind of investigative activity. It's, a, to me, a big but somewhat immature area of law, and it seems to me almost inevitable that we're going to see pressure uh, in that area. So like what we saw maybe on the encryption battles over the iPhone, which took place under the All Ritz Act, but I think in maybe a more focused way going forward in the next couple of years, that seems to me to be the, the next major rule of law battlefront for where the government and private sector are going to work their relationship out. Thanks, David. Craig, I know uh, you're, you're, you're a member organization. You're representing the Software Alliance. I know you also wanted to make it clear that you, you don't represent in your organization the major social media companies. But that being said, obviously, there's a lot of intersection between uh, your membership and the U.S. government. would love to get your thoughts on the topic. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for putting this together. It's a, it's a great panel, and, and, and appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, so at, at BSA, uh, we, our companies offer products in the consumer space, in enterprise, so selling to large businesses, and, and the government. Um, so all of those relationships are, are important for our companies. And as we approach these issues, we think about um, all of those different markets. Uh, and we're also a global organization, so we do policy advocacy uh, here in the United States, uh, as well as Europe and Brussels and, and a variety of capitals and Asian capitals and, and Latin America. And so we oftentimes will bring an international perspective to some of these issues as we think about them. Um, and maybe just to state the obvious up front, you know, the, as, as we approach these issues, um, we think of uh, the industry is largely in the middle. You know, they're, uh, they're, the industry, technology industry and the software industry are not the law enforcement officers who um, are tasked with keeping us safe and preventing crimes and prosecuting. Um, and they're not the criminals who law enforcement are pursuing and, and investigating. Um, they're in this middle space uh, and have obligations and, and responsibilities um, to their customers and to the government. Um, and, you know, the, the industry are, are what oftentimes what they would like to have is clarity um, about what uh, laws and regulations require. Uh, Long-term predictability is great from a business perspective. Um, and that's oftentimes what, what is, is desired uh, and a lot, oftentimes what we are advocating for. Um, but that's not always uh, easy because of a variety of factors. Um, I'd say that the uh, relationship between the technology uh, industry and the software industry and law enforcement is, is very, very important and very robust. Um, you know, one example you can look at are the transparency reports of the major technology companies, and you can see that, the, that there are tens of thousands of, of requests that are, um, that are uh, provided information for uh, in, in any given year. 
Um, and that doesn't include the range of activities that might occur from a national security perspective or um, other ways in which in which there's there's cooperation. Um, so it's 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 an important relationship, and it's and it's a robust relationship. And there's a recognition, I think, by everyone involved that. Uh, the information technology network in the United States is is a, an important tool for law enforcement to carry out its, its needs and its and its mission, and, and that relationship is important. And oftentimes, um, progress is most of the time progress is made when there's collaboration, where people are sitting down and talking to each other and trying to figure out how to work out problems. So that's oftentimes what what we're advocating for is. Is you know let's let's not argue. Let's figure out ways we can sit down and 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 try to work things out. Um, one of the areas where we where we advocate a lot is in modernization of of laws and, and regulations because there's just uh, a lack of a lack of clarity. We've had um, a massive increase in the amount of data that's created. Uh, we've had uh, a massive increase in the amount of cloud computing that's available. Um, we have remote computing power and processing power, and that's a whole different change to the information technology infrastructure. And laws and regulations oftentimes did not imagine the technology as it, as it exists. Um, and the amount of data that's going across borders is growing astronomically also. So there are areas, um, David mentioned the Cloud Act. We would uh, feel uh, very uh, pleased that we were able to um, that the Congress is able to pass that into law. Uh, that's an example. We, uh, the, our industry supported that legislation. The Justice Department supported that le legislation. We think it's a good example of where there was modernization needed, and parties were able to come together and, and work something out and, and modernize the law and, and support cooperation between the industry and, and law enforcement. And there are other areas that we think um, we can pursue that kind of cooperation and continue to, to advocate for them. Um, one dynamic just to, to put into this, it's good that Stuart just showed up because he's, he's familiar with this one. Um, from an international perspective, you know, there, there are dynamics here where, where other countries try to put pressure on uh, United States policy and United States laws and will often try to leverage the commercial relationship in, in, in order to do so. And that's certainly the dynamic we see between the United States and Europe, um, where Europeans have feelings about um, uh, the extent to which European data should, should leave the continent um, and what rules uh, should be around that. Um, and as we saw uh, with the Europeans' accord decision, um, European Court of Justice decision that brought down the so-called safe harbor. Um, the, the, the court is not afraid to say that um, U.S. national security laws um, are, are, are uh, in the way of them being able to allow uh, data transfers of Europeans' data out of Europe. Um, and that certainly puts the technology industry in a difficult perspective. Uh, our modern economy requires data. It requires data across borders. This is not just a software industry issue. This is every industry issue. Manufacturing issues, it's retail, it's in financial services. I mean, just think of the need from a cybersecurity perspective for data to be transferring overseas instantaneously so that we can catch um, incidents and, and, and address them. So, so the, the need for data to, uh, to, to cross borders is 
is essential in, in, in today's time. Um, but we have uh, a situation where the European Court is, is willing to strike down mechanisms that allow data transfers from, um, from Europe to the United States based on U.S. national security laws. And that is, is not a, a comfortable situation long term um, because I don't think that the United States is, is going to forego its, its tools uh, to investigate um, uh, national security issues and, and acquire the intelligence. Um, and quite frankly, European capitals who are responsible for their own intelligence gathering oftentimes seem very pleased that the United States does gather that information when they have incidents on their soil and, and would like to have cooperation with the United States in exchanging that intelligence information. So we have this, this long-term uh, lack of clarity around um, the degree to which the commercial relationship between the United States and Europe will be leveraged to try to get changes that seem not possible um, in U.S. law. And so there's some dynamics like that into this that I think uh, are very interesting um, and, and worthy of, of thought and discussion to, to try to think of a strategy long term to try to address them. Um, one other aspect I'll, I'll make a couple comments about is um, you know, one of the, the um, pressures that uh, we think about and try to address is just the massive amount of uh, increase in, in cybersecurity attacks. Uh, it, you know, law enforcement are not the only uh, folks interested in getting your, your data and, and business data. Um, there, there are, as Mark laid out, there, there are a lot of malicious actors and the number of um, attacks and data breaches um, and thefts, you know, have, have, have grown astronomically. And uh, the, the technology industry and the software industry has to be thinking about what can they do to make these um, tools as secure as they can be. Um, and that includes a variety of strategies. Um, and there are oftentimes uh, regulatory agencies that may find businesses for not having sufficient security uh, if they do not have sufficient security. So oftentimes when we uh, look at proposals that might be coming from the government, um, we sometimes have to consider, okay, from a security perspective, what, what does this mean? And um, oftentimes uh, new ideas that, that might help with security could have trade-offs with security in, in other ways. And, and that's something that's, that's important to, to consider, um, and it's certainly been an important issue that the policymakers have considered for, for various ideas. Um, so I'll, I'll just stop there. I want to throw out a few concepts to get the ball rolling. Thanks, Craig. Um, Stuart, to give you the benefit of hearing a little more, Scott, do you want to go next, and then we'll come yeah. to Stuart? <clears throat> sure. It, I appreciate being here. I thank everybody for bringing us together. It's especially fun to be back with David and uh, Stuart, who I've enjoyed working with and in the government and out of the government on, on uh, the government commercial mix of issues. Get your mic. Oh, thank you. Press your button. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, sorry. It's especially fun to be back uh, with Stuart and David, who I've enjoyed working with uh, on these issues in the government and out of the government, and um, it's a great set of topics. Let me... Um, start by answering the question. So we're asked, uh, is there a duty uh, to, to cooperate with the government? So 
I'll give a short answer. Yes, but not in the way the question's asked. I don't know that the duty is best viewed by either the government or the corporations as a duty to the government. As somebody who spends a whole lot of time working with corporations, teaching corporate law, thinking about markets, and thinking about uh, investors, I think the duty is to the corporation. I think the duty is to the corporation and to the corporation's owners and investors to cooperate with the government. And here's how. David tells a wonderful story of the titans of power clashing with each other, the titans in industry clashing with the titans in government. Um, but um, rather than beat up on each other, um, I know it's fashionable on television today to yell and scream, uh, what, what if we cooperated? What if it turns out there were authentic, selfish reasons for business to diplomatically align, notice the alignment of its interests with the government and vice versa, and for them to coordinate with each other in good ways. Uh, as a law professor, you gotta start with a, a something the government could do. All right, I'll tell you something the government could do at a policy level. Um, uh, on the last panel, there was a discussion about optimal scale uh, to avoid complexity, to improve security, as though putting all of your eggs in one basket is a great thing. Just ask the friends of Bernie Madoff. That doesn't always play out so well. I agree that leaving all your Lego blocks on the floor and having maximum complexity is itself a separate risk, but I do think there can be deliberate choices to blend complexity and scale. And at the national policy level, here's a concrete example. You could envision a patent system, perhaps augmented by an antitrust system, that would facilitate the arrival into the market of a large number of varying sized firms, big firms, medium firms, and small firms. And if that were the domestic industry in the United States, in high tech, med tech, uh, fintech, and other related sectors, I think that would have increased national security uh, strength, increased protection for the individual corporate enterprises, uh, improve our economic growth, and I think that that would also improve the rate of the commercialization of our new technologies. How do I come to that hypothesis? Um, that's exactly what the Carter administration set out to do and the Reagan administration did do. There were not a lot of things those two administrations agreed on. This was one of them, and it played out to very good effect in the 1980s with our biotech sector, for example. Um, what is one thing the current government is doing? Um, if you look at the national security strategy and its alignment with the national defense strategy and their alignments with 
EO13806. You can go online and search through your favorite search engine for the Eisenhower Conference Working Group, and you will see a massive unclassified and therefore searchable on the internet and easy to read about uh, rollout of effort by defense, a big part of the government, to engage the commercial sector in a very significant way and to engage the commercial sector with two ideas in mind. One, the commercial sector is at very high risk and may not know it. And there are ways in which the commercial sector and the government sector can collaborate. Um, so um, what am I doing in my lawyer role at, as a partner in McCool? What am I seeing as I talk to people in executive suites in the United States or North America more generally, Europe, Korea, and Japan? I'm seeing that governments in those parts of the world and companies in those parts of the world have a lot of alignment of interest with each other. And um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of room for lawyers to do a lot of help. And this is a different kind of titan warfare that I would recommend. State, state litigation, investor state litigation, business to business litigation, what you might call lawfare. Not lawfare as the current blog defines it. Lawfare as the current blog defines it is the law of national security. I'm talking about lawfare as professional lawyers think about it, which is using the tools of law as it exists on the books to engage in a much higher stakes set of interactions um, for corporations and for parts of the governments who uh, are our friends. I think there's a lot of positive effect that can come from that. And is the world so bad if we as professional lawyers practice our profession in furtherance of our corporate clients' interests in ways that happen to improve national security? Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Stuart? First, I, I have to apologize. I uh, was sent um, the address as uh, 300 New Jersey Southeast. Uh, <laughs> I was on time for the Cannon Building, <clears throat> yeah. uh, but uh, it, uh, it took me a while to get here. Uh, so let me um, talk a little bit about uh, uh, this incentivization problem uh, and working with government. And I, I would start with the proposition that the problem today is that Silicon Valley is incentivized to cooperate with every government except ours. Uh, that is to say, uh, uh, the Europeans uh, uh, have adopted content regulation with enthusiasm, banning hate speech, uh, 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 restricting uh, what can be published under the right to be forgotten. And uh, they have imposed that with the threats of massive fines and liability on uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, um, I was saying to another government, uh, talking about regulating uh, for cybersecurity and the European approach, I said, well, you know, frankly, it's just easier to regulate if you don't have an industry of your own. 
uh, and they don't, uh, and so they're happy. It's a kind of a twofer to beat up uh, big tech from the United States uh, to achieve goals that they're interested in. So uh, Silicon Valley is obliged to, to, to march to the tune that, uh, um, uh, that, Europe, <coughs> that Brussels is playing, uh, but it's also obliged to comply with law in China and in Russia because they're not kidding around, right? They're, they're, they will just hammer the uh, companies or kick them out of their markets if they don't get the cooperation that they want, and by and large, that has given them the cooperation that they want. Whereas in the United States, uh, Silicon Valley has plenty of lobbyists. They represent lots of jobs in the United States, uh, uh, and uh, they don't mind um, fighting the U.S. government. I, I found this often when I was representing Silicon Valley companies. When, when they got a government order they didn't much like, if it was from a foreign government, they said, well, that's, you know, cultural relativism. We have to, you know, that's their society. And then they got the same order from the United States government. They said, that's an outrage. We'll never do it. Uh, and uh, uh, that is the second problem that uh, Silicon Valley tends to um, interpret the regulatory guidance that they get from uh, uh, abroad through a uniquely Silicon Valley prism. So when they're told to eliminate hate speech online by the Europeans, they just don't have any trouble agreeing with the Europeans that hate speech is pretty much anything that Trump voters say. Uh, and, uh, and, and finding ways to disadvantage it uh, in uh, subtle and unsubtle ways. Uh, uh, and um, only the US government uh, is in the position of saying, well, maybe that's a First Amendment problem for us to try to tell them not to do that. Uh, everybody else around the world is happy to say, no, no, those Trump voters, yeah, we, we can all agree that they shouldn't be talking. Uh, so I, I do think there's an incentive problem, but it's not about US government government regulatory authority. Uh, I think this leads Silicon Valley into remarkably foolish things uh, in the wake of Snowden, uh, when all of the rest of the world was complaining about privacy and uh, the National Security Agency. Uh, Silicon Valley embraced with enthusiasm the idea that there ought to be um, a, a TLS everywhere, the, the HTTPS, encryption of links back to the uh, uh, site that you're uh, going to, ought to be encrypted. And the, the enthusiasm for that was not because there'd been a lot of uh, compromises, uh, but, but, the, but because the compromises had mostly been by the National Security Agency. And everybody around the world and in Silicon Valley was mad at the National Security Agency. And they thought this was a good way to uh, cock a snoot at uh, the agency. Ironically, it turned out that the, the victims of TLS everywhere were local law enforcement everywhere except the United States, which could serve warrants. Uh, that led to mass localization requirements and ultimately to the Cloud Act. Uh, uh, as law enforcement woke up to the fact in other countries that they were never going to be able to intercept another uh, communication on the internet, uh, even if, they, if, if it was communication between two people inside their country. Uh, uh, and they got mad. They, they used localization and privacy as a stick to beat Silicon Valley with. And the result has not been a policy that Silicon Valley should be thrilled by. Last point uh, that I would make is, uh, uh, and I don't know, I, I'm guessing we didn't talk much about it here, uh, phone encryption. 
this is the, uh, the biggest area where there ought to be more cooperation and where, led by Apple, but with plenty of enthusiastic support from other com uh, companies, uh, uh, Silicon Valley has worked over time to lock law enforcement out of phones. Uh, I do not see a big consumer demand for this because, frankly, most of us don't have our phones stolen. Uh, if our phones are stolen, we have plenty of ways to uh, uh, disable them uh, I, so that uh, uh, thieves can't get into the contents. And that's why you would want to have good security uh, uh, for uh, your uh, stolen phone. But the things that Apple has done are enormous additional efforts to make sure that if your phone is obtained with a warrant during an arrest by law enforcement, they can't get access to it either. Uh, and I don't see a big consumer demand for that. If there is a consumer demand uh, for that, then obviously it's making Apple more profitable uh, because people are buying their phones because they're uh, uh, getting the guarantee that uh, law enforcement won't have access to it. Well, you know, if this were any other industry or any other problem, we would say, so Apple's making money by externalizing a cost, which is the cost of not being able to investigate crime successfully. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, that, uh, uh, they, get, they get all the benefits of providing unbreakable encryption to their customers uh, and the demand that that uh, generates. Uh, and the costs are borne by the victims of crime and by law enforcement agencies around the world. Uh, uh, and again, if we were analyzing this in a standard public policy way, we'd say, well, fine, we should make them uh, pay for the uh, harms that they have externalized uh, uh, by imposing strict liability on Apple and other companies that uh, that create unbreakable uh, encryption uh, that, that law enforcement can't get into. Uh, uh, they should just pay the damages uh, if uh, phones encryption prevents a successful investigation of a crime or prevention of future crime. Um, I, I'm still at a loss to understand why we are not even discussing that as a problem of externalities. So I'll stop there. I think that I've caused enough trouble. Uh, and uh, I, I take, take whatever reaction we get. Thanks, Stuart. Um, so having heard each of the panelists, um, there seems to be a couple of themes uh, that come out of each person's uh, point of view. Um, I, I, as a departure, though, I'd like to begin with David Chris's hypothetical, which was there's some massive event, which I think will tie together some of the comments that all the panelists made. There's a massive event, uh, terrorist, you know, dramatic terrorist act, you know, certainly greater in scale than anything we've had since 9-11. Uh, there's a device that's encrypted. Uh, we couldn't get to the information because it was encrypted. Uh, this is the going dark problem come to life. Um, and I'm just wondering from if you're in the shoes of a Silicon Valley tech titan C-suite, what are you thinking about? Because I'm, I'm, the tension I'm trying to get at is you're wanting to, at least to this point, the market seems to like the positioning of the Silicon Valley tech companies. They like that Apple is an advocate for privacy. But now you've got this dilemma where your advocacy for privacy may have allowed this horrible attack to happen. 
I'm just wondering, as the pendulum swings back, there's an obvious and easy fix, and that is Congress can legislate some drastic new regime that may not be fit for purpose, but certainly feels good immediately. And so I'm just wondering, is that the best way for us to square a circle like that? I don't know. Scott, you, you're putting your finger up like you want to jump in on it, so please. Just two brief reactions. Um, one is, I think it's... Uh, a, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see whether Stort's hypothesis is right that the next tobacco or gun litigation you see is um, consumer plaintiff action against a phone company for the tort of, um, 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 cre of, of, of creating more victim and more degree of victimhood um, because uh, encryption was... Uh, uh, an inherently dangerous device was left out in the market uh, and mayhem ensued. So I, that's an interesting hypothesis. We'll see when those... I, I appreciate your drafting the complaint. But <laughs> I, I think that sounds great uh, for the contingent litigators out there, you know, and litigation financiers. Let's go do that. Um, for the government, you know, the Apple fight, as an observer, I just was astounded by, because it was the, to me as an observer, it was the epitome of the clash of the titans vaporware. Uh, it was, uh, I get to fight, but all shucks I lost. That was the government's position. And Apple gets to say, you know, I fought to defend um, uh, widows and orphans and privacy. Um, and who's against those? So, uh, but it was fought in the Title 18 arena, criminal law. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be a math major to get that if they call something Title 18, it's because they got a lot of, they got 17 more on the shelf before, and it's a decent hypothesis they've got a bunch after. The federal government's got a lot of authority or power. Title 18 power is only one of them. The federal government could have walked into Apple and taken the key. That's called a taking. The government is not prohibited from taking, at least under current law. The government has to take and pay. But that's fine. The Fifth Amendment says take and pay. So the government could have taken and paid. The government has lots of authorities to act. And the very public fight, the clash of the titans over the phone key, was all about look over here, but don't consider the many other titles, like Title 10 authority, Title 50 authority, Fifth Amendment power. There are lots of other powers. So, so Craig, do you want to get on on that? Sure. Um, so, I, you know, I love having uh, Stuart on a panel. If you, and if you don't listen to his podcast, you should, because there's lots of entertaining um, dialogue <laughs> like, like, uh, like he provided us, us here. But... I think on, on this, this question of the phones, there, there are misconceptions out there that I think are unfortunately undermining the ability to really make progress on, on this issue. You know, to, when, when, unfortunately, when we hear statements like the, the, the companies have been working overtime to thwart law enforcement or that advocacy for privacy has resulted in, um, in a terrorist attack are, are things that are just not true um, and, and unfortunate. Uh, because that's where the debate gets inflamed and, and people go to their corners. And, and we see that from the Inspector General's report that 
the DOJ didn't pursue all the means that it might have had to unlock the phone, and we know that they mishandled the phone where they could have gotten more access to it if they had understood how to handle the technology more effectively. And we see the government putting out numbers of the number of encrypted phones that are preventing them from uh, pursuing cases, and then and then it turns out well, that number is actually dramatically lower than what had been reported. And so there are a lot of misconceptions about this issue that are unfortunately fueling a debate that's that's overly heated. And one of the uh, potential tragedies of this inflamed debate is missing in a very important, large part of this challenge, which is law enforcement's inability to understand how to utilize the technology, which is very understandable. You can't expect law enforcement officers in states and localities and counties and, and the FBI itself to know the best way to handle the technology or to know what information is, is available to them. And it's very complicated. There are lots of different devices. And if you're not a technology person, you're, you're, you're inhibited. And we talked a little bit about the need to modernize. David touched on, on this. Um, does the government provide sufficient training for opportunities for law enforcement? Do they have one-stop shops where law enforcement agencies can go to try to get information about how to handle the technology? Uh, what opportunities are the, is the technology industry taking advantage of to engage in these educational sessions? Um, where are the congressional hearings providing oversight for the mechanisms that the government has in place already to provide this kind of education and technical help? Um, is it sufficient? Um, these are very important questions that we think need to be addressed in, in order to understand and, ad and, and address the, the challenge that law enforcement has. How much of this, you know, is, it, it can be oftentimes be framed as this is a phone encryption issue, which is a very small aspect of the issue of the law enforcement uh, being able to get access to digital evidence. And... We, I think we need to understand what percentage of the problem is on uh, phones um, and what percentage of the problem is all these other means that, that, that law enforcement struggles to get the, the evidence that they need. One other point that, that I'll make is, is that, um, that the number of data breaches, the, the, the number of uh, security incidents, um, <coughs> what you have seen is that with the increase in security on phones, the number of data breaches that are attributable to lost or stolen phones has dramatically decreased. And these data breaches are not just about taking your personal information. We're talking about phones that can hook into critical infrastructure. We're talking about kidnappers that are trying to get information about where children may be. <coughs> this is not a, a theoretical uh, uh, problem that security is trying to address. This is a real-life problem where we have uh, data breaches that need to go down. Uh, there are lots of people around town who are focusing on legislation or other initiatives to be able to bring down the number of data breaches, to be able to bring down the incidents <coughs> in, in which lost or stolen phones contribute 
um, to security issues. This is, this is not a theoretical issue. It's an issue that, that a number of people are focused on and trying to pay attention to because it's important. And it's important to recognize that as more security has been added into phones, the number of incidents um, that have taken place as a result of lost or stolen phones has gone down. And this is something that is um, uh, beneficial and, and desired from a public policy perspective. David, just, and I know you've got maybe a comment on that, but as you lead into that, I'm wondering your thoughts, you know, when we talk about the San Bernardino case, which is sort of the, the, the item that gets highlighted by the going dark advocates, is that more exception than rule? Is, is there more good news to report out there than you might see in the headlines? I'm just wondering from the perspective of the level of cooperation and the quality of cooperation between um, government agencies and the industry right now. Let me start with that and then wrap back yeah. to sort of following up and agreeing with a good deal of what Craig said. Um, if you look at the providers' transparency reports, which are issued on a six-month basis, you see a substantial amount of cooperation that is occurring without generating any headlines. This is a classic you know, sort of dog bites man uh, situation. It's not worthy of attention. But their response rates are, I don't know, in the 70s, 80 percentage. Um, I think they did. We, we only started issuing these and, and, and seeing them after Snowden, so you don't have a before Snowden uh, baseline. Um, and I'm you know, sort of. So it's limited by that. But it, it is not as if there is broad-based civil disobedience occurring across the spectrum, even if there are some significant and, in many cases, noisy uh, highlighted disputes that occur. Um, you know, Getting back to the sort of possibility of an external event, which I brought up, I mean, it's important to remember, I think, that could go either way. That is, there could be a terrorist attack in which the Bureau is monitoring some bad guys who are talking on an open channel, and then just as it starts to get interesting and exciting, they migrate intentionally and explicitly to an encrypted channel, and there we later learned, due to forensics on a device of a dead bomber, we, you know, they plotted and had the Bureau had access that would have saved the day. It also could be the case that a, a software maker is compelled in some way to write code that creates a vulnerability that the Bureau can exploit in order to stop the attackers, and then you have the next WannaCry on steroids. So. I'm sure that the folks in these companies fear both hypotheticals. I agree, Matthew, that any legislation or other governmental action driven uh, by emergency um, is usually not very smart. It may be, as you know, uh, Rahm Emanuel said, a, a mistake to let any crisis go to waste. And sometimes it's the only way to get something shoved through, but it tends to be suboptimal. So it would be good to plot, plan ahead. Um, I do think the encryption debate has tended to generate more heat than light. Um, it was not helped, and I've written about this, that the Bureau apparently can't quite count. Um, uh, you know, They say they can't do the math when they're attacking on the encryption front, but I don't think they meant that the Bureau couldn't count the number of phones. That was awkward. Um, you know, These things happen, but it's, it's not helpful. And I think also the IG report does show that they don't coordinate. Um, I think they, they ought to develop better coordination mechanisms within the Bureau and Maine Justice around these technical assistance requests, which, as I say, I think is where the next battle is going to be. But I do fundamentally agree with Craig that there is a lot of low-hanging fruit that can be harvested with respect to digital policing and the use of digital evidence that is without prejudice to the encryption problem, which remains and, and does need to get solved. Um, I think digital network technology has been very bad for both security and for privacy. 
It's been great for convenience and for making funny pictures with a, you know, whatever, emoji. But so it has wonderful things. I don't mean to criticize it, but I do believe it has hurt both privacy and security. And it does seem to me that, again, without prejudice to encryption, there is considerable room for improvement, particularly among the thousands of state and local law enforcement agencies, the sort of non-elite, not as well-funded agencies. Uh, for for improvement there, and I think that'll help. It won't solve. I don't mean to suggest it's a distraction from it, but but it, I think you know, I think there is a lot of skill and expertise and capacity that could be developed with respect to digital evidence, which we ought to do regardless of what we do on these other issues. Yeah. Just being mindful of the time, I did want to reserve uh, some for audience questions. So if you've got questions, uh, there are folks with microphones around the room. I don't know if anyone's a We've got one here up front, very front table. I just want to get, let you get a mic because we're streaming this so people uh, sitting in front of their screens can hear you. Right here, gentlemen, right here. It's good to see Stuart Baker on the panel. It makes me feel almost young. <laughs> um, like Mr. Chris, uh, I, I believe the Justice Department uh, reached its high watermark of rationality when I was there, and things <laughs> fell off a little little later. But Mark, let me ask you this: uh, uh, among the reasons why some companies don't want to cooperate with uh, criminal investigations where they are clearly victims, is the fact that they're beset by regulatory agencies: the SEC, the FTC, the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, it, go, it, it goes. It goes on. Now, much of what they, and, and of course, public companies will have disclosure will have disclosure issues. Uh, uh, many things, of course, are the, are the product of negligence that companies don't want to have uh, uh, disclosed. But, and there's, of course, no preemptive legislation so that uh, even, even if agreements can be reached at the federal level, they're not immune from, from activity by state attorneys general and, 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 and private lawsuits. Uh, to what extent, uh, uh, if, if any, uh, has the criminal division been considering uh, a way to have, say, a presumptive standard, say NIST compliance, that uh, that would get somebody over the over the hurdle and, and, and could get qualified immunity, and then cooperate uh, with with the department. Great. Well, thanks for that question. And as um, someone who's not in the criminal division, and, and also uh, you know the typical sort of one-way information flow of the government that uh, David was talking about, you know, this is all very information. Unfortunately, I can't tell you anything interesting, um, or not much interesting. Um, what I can say is. Um, we are very aware that there are obstacles um, in, in the way that, uh, or that companies feel, um, and whether they're real or perceived, they're um, equally uh, forceful as an impediment to reporting to, to law enforcement. Now, there's the, the regulatory regimes and the regulators, and they have their own sticks and carrots um, to try to get companies to report uh, or, or self-report when there are issues that implicate SEC or you know FTC things like that. Um, the FBI and the Department of Justice we're we're not regulators, so we try to treat um, the companies as victims and try to um, treat instances uh, that are reported to us as instances of crime that need to be investigated. Um, we're not interested in uh, seeing uh, you know turning that into a regulatory event. And we understand that in order to encourage the um, reporting that we need to make sure that um, those you know, instances where people report to law enforcement, to the FBI, 
are um, kept confidential to the extent possible and permissible by law, and um, that the data that's, any of the information or data that's provided to the FBI or shared um, is, is kept confidential and protected as, as much as possible. We understand it's not perfect as it is right now, and there's definitely things that are constantly you know, being looked at. Um, and so you know, to, to, to what extent, I can't, I can't say more than that, but um, everyone's aware that, it, that there are impediments, that additional impediments, real or perceived, that need to be addressed. But if I, if I could just, what Mark and his colleagues are doing in the government as professionals um, will help, and you're hearing that, and would you, the questioner and your colleagues are doing in the private sector with anxiety about the plurality of touch points and exposure is uh, a cry for help that is being heard. Let me offer a neutral private ordering solution that my colleagues and I are seeing demand for and as a result, we're supplying and others are supplying, which is <clears throat> the private sector, uh, in, in the words of uh, um, uh, Spinal Tap vintage um, um, uh, movie and TV references, the $6 million man, uh, we have the technology, we can rebuild him. Um, you in the private sector, we in the private sector can mitigate a lot of the anxiety the question presumes by building compliance operations inside corporate and law firm and accounting firm and financial firm enterprises that are mindful compliance operations, mindful of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and AML type concerns, mindful of trade, antitrust, national security concerns, mindful of David's elegant point about um, both privacy and security suffering at the same time. Uh, in the financial space, for example, you have to, on the one hand, not know your customer while knowing your customer. Um, that's okay. The trick is there are ways to build compliance operations in that setting. They are admittedly somewhat expensive, but anything uh, that mitigates the high degree of risk premised by the question um, is going to be worth that. It's an investment, but it's something that you can make right now and will go a very long way in North America, Europe, Korea, and Japan to mitigate a lot of the risk in the question. I think uh, Stuart and David want to get in on this quickly. Okay. Stuart, a view? First, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, uh, agree with Craig that uh, all of you should be listening to the Cyber Law Podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I, it, and on, on this one, I, I have to say, I think there are hard issues that none of these, you know, agreement on security standards can solve. Uh, one of the lessons is kind of surprising uh, from the Inspector General's report on the uh, Clinton investigation uh, uh, was that at the very time when the FBI is dealing with this uh, government effort to influence our uh, uh, electoral politics by breaking in and stealing DNC emails, at no point was the DNC willing to let the FBI look at its servers and uh, uh, email. 
And you might say, oh, that's terrible. You know, uh, how can you do that? Well, you only have to ask. They're in the middle of an investigation of their candidate for her use of an email server. And the FBI then comes to you and says, oh, by the way, we'd like to look through all of your computer communications to see what we can find out about the Russians. I, there isn't a lawyer in this room that's going to say, oh, yeah, sure. I, I, and I don't see how we solve that problem. Dave? Well, I just I do feel for Craig. I, I do not think the Justice Department hit its high water mark of rationality when I was there. Certainly, I saw many acts of irrationality. And I think actually the the, uh, the central point I think I want is trying to make is that the, the problems of interaction between the private sector and the government are actually kind of the same as always. I think they the needle has not moved a lot, and it's precisely for reasons that Stuart just identified applied across a, a variety of spectrum. Let me just make one, I feel a little bit curmudgeonly in this, so I want to sort of sound a note of optimism, even if it's a bit of a forced effort. Um, so I do think with increasing awareness of foreign government hacking and potential private sector hacking and the various threats that those represent, smart corporations, including cloud service providers, platform providers, are going to increasingly want to enlist, or at least they ought to increasingly want to enlist the federal BI and others to go out and clobber a bad website or a bad actor of some kind, particularly an actor who is inflicting harm on their platform or service clients by uh, breaking in or attempting to break in on a repeated basis. And they will be incentivized, if they're smart and thinking ahead, to do some kind of internal review and investigation, package it up, put it on a silver platter, and hope they can get the attention of the US attorney mm -hmm. by making it easy. The downside is then how to manage what comes next, which is the Bureau saying, OK, that's terrific. Thanks a lot. But we need to have unfettered access to your servers for all your customers across all platforms. And don't give me any polymorphic encryption nonsense. Um, that, I think, I'm a little more optimistic than Stuart. I, I think with sufficient effort, we could develop protocols for how that's done, ideally written, formal. One of the things the IG report does seem to demonstrate is that when you have procedures, you should follow them. And life is easier when you have those procedures. I think there is a way, potentially, to develop procedures that won't be perfect, but would work, both on the government side and on the uh, private sector side. And it probably wouldn't even need legislation. It would just need some thoughtful agreement. If we develop those, we might get progress in 60 to 80% of the cases. Not all of them by any means, but in at least a meaningful percentage of them. So I'm holding out hope for a bright future of cooperation between tech titans and the government. Ah, the silver lining. We have about five minutes left. Are there any other questions from the audience? I feel like an auctioneer looking for a bid. The gentleman over there uh, in the orange tie. Thanks very much for coming out and speaking to us. Uh, can we go back to incentives? Uh, Stuart opened with a comment about how uh, incentives are not well aligned um, to towards cooperation. Um, if you could take away one carrot, or sorry, take away one stick, or add one carrot, right, to increase the level of uh, cooperation between U.S. companies with uh, U.S. government. Uh, what would what would that be to the panel? What do Except you think would be panel? the most, most effective? Yeah. Does anyone want to take that first? Well, 
I haven't given it a lot of thought, so um, I probably will want to reserve the right to come back and say something even you know better than maybe what I say now. But um, one thing I think that it sort of goes a little bit to what Dave was saying. One thing I think that would help a lot is if there was a way for uh, the government to standardize how it makes requests um, across uh law enforcement agencies at, at both state county you know, at state county and local local levels there is a, um, a lot of inefficiency because not um, all of the um, law enforcement agencies are equipped to provide their requests in in the form that is needed in order for it to be digested quickly and if you if we could wave a magic wand and create a standard by which all law enforcement agencies across the country could uh, put their requests together in a way that, that meets the standard, that would be a significant change. Um, you know, and we probably could see uh, uh, companies in receipt of those requests work to refine their ability to respond to them in terms of is it properly staffed and, and digested, and that. Um, change alone in, into trying to rationalize that system, I think, would make a, a significant difference. Scott? So the theme of my remarks was that <clears throat> there are a vast number of things we already can be doing with existing law. So I would actually start by saying, let's use that pretty well before doing a whole lot more. But my second uh, remark will be whether you use those or use new tools, I think it's really important to keep in mind there is hyper variation in setting. One size will not fit all. Whatever your theory of optimal regulation is and safety and protection is in the kind of consumer space, I think it's very different when you think about your optimal theory of criminal law enforcement that's, in a sense, more serious. Like, we don't want people murdering each other. Yes, we'd like water to be clean. Yes, we'd like privacy to be respected, but we'd like the food not to be poisonous, okay? Uh, there are degrees. And then one or two rungs higher on that ladder is we don't want the country destroyed, okay, national security. So I think if, for example, if you're in the government and you're saying um, there's a phone or there's data and we need access to it, do we need access to that because there is literally a ticking time bomb that's going to cook off a major metropolitan area or um, a junior is going to have um, inappropriate use made of the social security number they will learn when they become an adult but haven't otherwise paid attention to. Uh, uh, that's important, but it's different. So I think we should um, really recognize scale here and uh, one size, one fit all. Stuart, final comment? So you, you heard my suggestion for uh, uh, cooperation with law enforcement on encryption. Uh, I am starting to think more uh, than I, I have in the past about this problem of other governments skewing what Americans can say and hear, because uh, I think it's a very serious problem that we are 
afraid to confront. Uh, the last time we confronted something like this was when there were a whole bunch of uh, uh, Nazi fronts, real Nazi fronts, not Twitter Nazi fronts, uh, a, that were engaging in speech to try to keep the United States out of World War II. And we passed the Foreign Agent Registration Act designed to say if you're doing this on behalf of a foreign government, uh, you have to disclose it. And I think uh, um, requiring disclosure of everything that uh, social media companies in Silicon Valley are doing that affects what we read and what we say, I, I, uh, public disclosure, disclosure to the US government of that would go a long way, and I think cons consistent with the First Amendment, to allowing us to see uh, just how much influence uh, foreign governments are trying to have on our body politics dialogue. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Uh, so I think we're just about at the end. I want to give our guests from the administration the final word. Thanks, Matt, and, and um, thanks to my co-panelists. Um, this has been really, really interesting. And um, you know, I, speaking for myself personally, I mean, I don't disagree with actually quite a lot of um, what's been talked about. I mean, absolutely, it's it's clear that. Um, we need better information. Um, it's unacceptable when we don't have accurate information about um, the threats and the problems that we're facing in the cyber realm, including encryption. Um, absolutely, we um, need to do a better job uh, as a government of using all the resources that are available to us and, and exploring all those resources. Um, so uh, that, I, I agree with all of that. Um, on the other hand, there's also... Um, uh, you know, particularly as to the encryption issue, I, th I think one point that I'll make, and then I have a final plug to make, is that this truly is, I mean, it's, it's been with us for a while. The encryption issue has been around for a while. It evolves. It will continue to evolve. Um, but it's, it's real. And um, it's not just something that the federal government is worried about, federal law enforcement. It affects state and local law enforcement. It affects law enforcement all over the world. Um, every country is dealing with this and worried about it. Uh, because where you have um, warrant uh, proof and encryption, you basically are inviting um, a, a law-free zone of activity. Um, and so that's, that's an issue that we're working hard on. Um, let me, as, as a final point, just make a plug. In um, February of, t of 2018, the Attorney General ordered uh, the Department of Justice to form a cyber digital task force. Uh, to take on some of these hard issues like encryption, like public-private cooperation, uh, like foreign influence efforts. Um, that task force has been working hard, and um, the AG had uh, ordered a report, an initial report, to be um, done within six months. Um, so... Are you on track? <laughs> we're on... We're, we're not only on... I, and I don't know if it was actually even six months. It was... Um, it was by the end of uh, by the end of June, and, and sure enough, we're on track. So, uh, it's I think this is already public, but the Deputy Attorney General is going to be making that public um, at the Aspen Security Forum in July. Um, there's a lot of really really good information in there, and I think um, not only is there a lot of good information in there, but it's not the final say of the Cybersecurity Task Force or the Cyber Digital Task Force. It's really a, a, an effort to get the department thinking analytically and in a sort of problem-solving oriented fashion to, to look at all these hard issues, figure out what we can do better 
Um, so there's some really good recommendations in there, but there's also a lot of good um, tasking, taskings of here's what we still need to do and here's what we're going to be working on in the months ahead. So that's something to look forward to, and, and I think it's just confirmation that um, this administration and this Department of Justice um, really uh, does take these issues seriously. It's, um, it's important um, in our law enforcement mission. It's important in our national security mission. Um, and so we really appreciate hearing from the private sector and hearing the challenges that uh, they're facing because absolutely cooperation with the private sector is the only way that we're going to be able to confront um, all of the threats that we face. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. And um, I hope you all join me. I've got one housekeeping note after, so don't run away. But please join me in thanking our panelists, Scott, Stewart, Craig, David, Mark.